as we just went through another New Year's Eve to New Year's. How many of y'all watched the ball drop in New York? Anybody still watch that? A few of us. How many of y'all are glad that it happens at 11 and not at midnight? Okay. As time goes on, uh, I remember a time whenever my children wanted to stay up and watch it and experience it and do the stroke of midnight thing. And this year, Cindy and I are like, it's 10 o'clock. What's the point? Let's just go to bed. Happy New Year, people. And uh, um, we stayed up. We watched the ball drop. And, uh, and there's something about a passing from an old past to a new future, from something that has happened to something that you hope for. Um, one, of the, one of the interesting things about the passing of the new year uh, from the old year to the new year, is a song that we sing. Uh, well, I say that we sing, but it's in like a movie, and it, it'll be in, um, uh, in, in, on TV, and you might even see it on like a New Year's show. But it's whenever they start to sing what song? Old Lang Syme. And it always starts, and everybody's like, oh, yeah. And then everybody's like, ah, nah, what are we singing or what are we singing about? But it's one of those traditions that seems like a cool song. It kind of has a catchy tune. But the reality of it is we really don't know what the words are. Many of us don't know what the words are, nor what it means. But I was thinking about the passing of the new year. And the phrase actually is noted in a poem in the 15th century. And as far back as the 15th century, it was a phrase that was bidding somebody a good farewell. And, um, and then later it was put into a poem in the late 1700s with the words that we now know as Auld Lang Syne. So when that song comes on, I always feel a little awkward. What are, what are we doing? What are we, what are we singing? Yeah, I know it's a catchy. This morning we gather at a table and we celebrate the passing of a past. And we celebrate our hope for a better future. And there's times whenever I sit with you and take communion and go, what does this really mean? What does it really mean that I am dying and Christ is coming to life in me? What does it mean to remember? A Savior who died for me and rose again so that I could live eternally with God. About 1,100 years ago, in the middle of the Middle Ages, there was a king who was called a people's king, the king of the people. Everybody in his kingdom loved him, but the way that kingdoms were set up in the Middle Ages was by a feudal system in which there were social classes of people which would tell your importance essentially based on your wealth or occupation. And so at the very top of the ladder was royalty, and underneath that was nobility, and underneath that were the knights or the warriors, and beneath that were the peasants or the serfs who were really the working class who did most of the work but didn't really 
see any of the reward. And the way that kingdoms and even cities were, were built was that the highest classes would be in the center of the city, and as you got further and further away, you would have lesser and lesser classes of people, right? And so you'd have the peasants on the very outside, and this was mostly for protection so that the most important or the wealthiest people would be in the middle, protected from any outside attack. And this was the way in this king's kingdom. And his palace was in the very middle of the city, in the very middle of his kingdom. And just outside of that were all the, the nobility, and outside of that were, were a lot of the knights in and, and the upper echelon of the peasants, and so forth and so on. But the king, being a king for the people, decided one day he was going to leave his palace and experience what his kingdom was like as a peasant. And so he took off his royal robes and he took off his crown and he put on some really tattered uh, garments and he took out his uh, cologne-soaked cloth and left it on his nightstand so that people would smell his natural middle-aged musk. Um, And they... And he went outside of his city without his entourage, without his chariot, without anything, and he looked like he was a peasant. And he walked out with a smile, and he was chipper and had a great attitude and was looking forward to making some connections with some of the people. But as he walked out, he realized people were avoiding him. They wouldn't even give him the respect of looking him in the eye. And in fact, the people that did, the people that did address him, They would come up to him, and and he was spat upon, and he was cursed at, and he was told, you don't belong here. You need to leave and go back where you came from, to the outskirts of the city, because this is not for your class of people. You don't belong. And without knowing it, they're telling this to their king. And he was getting very upset and very distressed throughout the day, and hours go by, and he's walking around and experiencing the same thing over and over until he comes down a street and he sees a girl about eight years old having a pretend tea party in front of her house. And he smiled a little bit. And the girl came up to him and said, Sir, would, would you like to have a tea party with me? He was delighted. He said, that would be lovely. I would love to have a tea party with you. And he goes and sits down at this little tiny table with these little tiny chairs, and he has pretend tea with this girl. But it wasn't 20 minutes later that it was dinner time. And the girl heard a voice from the house that said, it's time to come in and eat. Today, in our culture, we would say it's time to come in and wash up and eat, but it was the Middle Ages, so you know, they didn't worry about that. Come in and eat. And so she looks at her new friend and she says, would you like to eat dinner with us? And he says, that'd be great, but let's ask your mom first. And she goes inside and she parades around her new friend and walks him inside and says, mom, can my new friend eat with us? And the mom looked at the, what she believed to be peasants and looked back at her daughter and said, he does not belong here. He needs to leave. But the daughter was unfazed. She looked back at her mom and said, please, mom, he's my friend. Can he please eat dinner with us? And her mom saw the look in her daughter's eyes and her heart melted a little bit. And she said, you, he can stay, 
but only for dinner, and then he must leave. And so they eat dinner, and I'm sure it was super awkward for all of the adults in the room, but for the, for the girl, it was exciting to have her friend and her family eating together at the table. And when dinner was over, her mom got up from the table, and she said, it's time for your friend to go home. And she says, no, 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 we haven't had dessert yet. We have to have dessert. Can he eat dessert with us? But the king understood the tone of the room. He looked at the girl and he said, it's okay. It's time for me to go. Thank you for a lovely evening. And he walked out of the house and he walked straight back to his palace. And he treasured all of these things in his heart. God, we love you and we praise you. We pray more than anything, God, that your kingdom come and that your will be done the same here as it is in heaven. God, we pray that you open our eyes, that you open our ears, that you open our hearts, that you open our minds, not just this morning, not just today, not just this week, but God, that you would help us continuously listen to hear your voice. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We'll get back to the king in just a minute, but first, I want to talk a little bit about some of the names of Jesus. See, Jesus had a whole bunch of names and titles. He had, some estimate, over 200 in the Bible. I can tell you I read a hundred of them this week and noticed that there were some missing from that list. Um, and so there's a whole bunch of names of Jesus, but I pulled a few out for us to look at today that I feel might be some of the most important names of Jesus. Um, the first one is Alpha and Omega, okay, or beginning and end, okay? And we see this, and this is important to me because it shows that, that he's infinite, right? He was here before the constructs of time and will be here after the constructs of time. Time doesn't bind him. He was here at the beginning. He'll be here at the end. And so that's a very important one for me. And then you've got Emmanuel. This was first mentioned in Isaiah chapter 7 in a prophecy. It means God with us. It was repeated in Matthew chapter 2 when Jesus was born, and it says that God truly has become incarnate. He has taken on flesh, and it matters because God came from his throne to be with us. The next one I have is Son of God, Son of Man, Son of David, Son of the Highest. He was labeled a son quite a bit as, I mean, all males are sons, right, at some point. But it's important to hear that he's the son of God and the son of the highest are kind of the same thing, right? Obviously very important. The son of man is also important because it says he's not only God, but he is also humankind. So he's both of these things, and it's very important. And to hear that he's the son of David, especially in the context of when Jesus was walking on this earth, the people knew that a king was coming from the line of David. And so that was important as well. You've also got shepherd, which is maybe the most practical way we can look at Jesus. Um, you can see that, that we're his sheep, and he is our shepherd, and we follow him and do what he says. And if you look in the story of the feeding of the 5,000 people, you actually see like an, a literal physical shepherd as he um, takes his sheep and puts them in groups of 50 and 100 to feed them, right? So that's a very important one. And then we've got the way, the truth, and the life. And specifically, I pull out the way, because if you look in Old Testament structure, you see the way being continuously brought up as we talk about the Exodus story. And we're talking about exit, the Exodus from Egypt. We're looking at the way out of Egypt, the way through the desert, the way to the promised land. And when people hear that Jesus is the way, 
they're kind of bringing that language and mentality back up. And so when they hear Jesus is the way, they're thinking Jesus is the way to the new promised land. A very important one, but of all of these, maybe the most important, aside from the fact that Jesus is God, maybe the, first, the most important uh, title or name that Jesus has given is the Christ, which comes from a Greek word meaning Christos, which is Christos. So it's just a transliteration of that word, which is just a Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. So when you see Christ and Messiah, they're completely interchangeable. It's the same exact word. And those words mean anointed one. And so when you hear anointed one, I also want you to think of a rhyme. When you hear anointed, I want you to think appointed. So I'm going to say anointed, you say appointed. Anointed? Very good. I'm, I'm glad none of you, I said anointed, you didn't say hip-jointed or anything like that, because if you do that rhyme, it's just not going to help you. But think of anointed and appointed together. There were some times when, uh, when things were physically anointed that didn't come with this figurative connotation of appointment. But there were some times in the Old Testament that I pulled out that came with, uh, with this connotation. You see a couple of priests, Aaron and Samuel, um, they were anointed physically and appointed figuratively to lead. Um, you see, the nation of Israel was anointed. And this wasn't a physical anointing, but a figurative appointment that God chose Israel. And we know that Israel was God's chosen people, right? So we know that that was an appointment. And then we see most commonly, and when people hear anointing, they think of kings. And I pulled out nine that I found. I think there's nine on this list. You've got Saul and David, the first two kings of God's people. And then you've got Absalom. And then you've got Solomon. And then you've got Jehu, Joash, Jehoahaz, Cyrus, and the king of Tyre. If you notice, Absalom and Jehoahaz are in red. They were anointed by people and not by God. Everyone else on this list was anointed by God for some purpose. The first, all but the last two were anointed to be the kings of God's people in Israel and in Judah. The king of Cyrus was anointed by God to destroy the Babylonian empire so that the Israelites could go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And the king of Tyre is, um, well, I'll let you look that one up and see what your conclusions are on that one. But anytime the word Messiah comes, we think of anointed one and it comes with this connotation of king, and it has to, because king is that appointment and anointment. And so when, when people hear Messiah, they're thinking this anointed one, the, the appointed king. And when we think of king, especially in old uh, ancient culture, we also have to think of warrior, because every king had to be a warrior. I mean, even in today's construct, in today's culture, where we are, we call the President of the United States the Commander-in-Chief, right? In charge of the military. And granted, we wouldn't expect the President of the United States to take up a sword and go into battle. But back in these times, the king would have to be ready and willing to do that. Because either the king got to power by insurrection, by leading an army, or the king has to be ready to defend himself from insurrection, from the next person trying to take over. Kings had to be great warriors. And so when people are hearing Messiah, they're thinking warrior king. And there's a few uh, 
not, there's more than a few, but three prophecies that I pulled out that I want to read quickly that show what people are thinking the Messiah is going to be. The first one's in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 13, and this is God talking to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for your offspring after, or raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish my kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Hey, David was known for being a great warrior, and David was known for being a great king. And God promised that there would be a king that would set up an eternal throne that came through the line of David. And this is a prophecy that the people of Israel are waiting for. Okay, the next one I have is in Daniel chapter 2. And in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel was an a advisor to the king, King Nebuchadnezzar. And King Nebuchadnezzar had a very strange dream. And it was so strange, he asked all of his advisors to interpret it but he wouldn't tell anybody what the dream was because he didn't want someone to make up a fake interpretation. He didn't want someone to make it up on the spot. He wanted it to be genuine. And so nobody could do it, and he wanted to kill all of his advisors, and someone came to arrest Daniel, and Daniel was like, why is he so mad? <laughs> he didn't even ask me. So Daniel goes to the king. God revealed to Daniel what the dream was. The dream was that there was a giant statue. It had a gold head, a silver chest and arms, bronze waist and, uh, and thighs, iron legs, and clay and iron feet. And there was a rock, a giant rock that was not cut by human hands that came and smashed the statue to smithereens, and from this rock grew a mountain big enough to fill the earth. You can see why King Nebuchadnezzar might have been disturbed by this dream, especially if God put it on his heart to be curious about it. Really strange dream. And Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, well, the golden head is your kingdom. It's the greatest. It's the most powerful. It's the most valuable. After you will come another kingdom. It's made of silver and another and another, and they'll slowly get less and less valuable as time goes on. And then someone will come and destroy these kingdoms, these empires, and from that will arise a mountain a kingdom big enough to fill the earth. So here's what it says in Daniel chapter 2, 44, as, as uh, Daniel's kind of summing it all up. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom, and it will never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and there broke the pieces, uh, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. So people in Israel are familiar with this story, and they're awaiting this time when all of the empires, like the Roman Empire that was in charge when Jesus was here, to crumble to the ground and for God's kingdom to reign across the earth. The last one I want to pull out is kind of from Genesis chapter 49, but this is from the Targum Neophyte. Targum is just an Aramaic translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And it wasn't just a translation, it was also some paraphrasing, right? The editors took some, 
some liberties with some things. So I wouldn't say this is a word-for-word translation, and some things probably get lost in it. But I want to read it because this was written during the Roman Empire, maybe even toward the end of Jesus' life or up to a couple hundred years afterwards. But this is the context and what people are thinking as Jesus is walking the earth. This is how they interpret the words in Genesis. How beautiful is King Messiah who is to arise from among those of the house of Judah. He girds his loins and goes forth to battle against those that hate him. And he kills kings with rulers and makes the mountains red from the blood of their slain and makes the valleys white from the fat of their warriors. His garments are rolled in blood. He is like a presser of grapes. Whoa, that's violent, right? And this is what people are thinking the warrior king Messiah is going to be. People are ready for this person to come and physically dominate and establish the kingdom of God to reign on earth forever. This is the Messiah the people were ready for. I want to take a quick break, and I want to dismiss Children's Church at this time. If you have a two-year-old, a three-year-old, or a four-year-old, I want to ask you to go to Children's Church, grab them, come back in here, because in just a few minutes, we're going to do a baby blessing for all of our kids that were born in 2021, and we want our kids to be in here to witness that. So I'm going to ask that you go ahead and do that. We'll dismiss Children's Church. And if you have a baby that was one of those babies that was born in 2021, go ahead to the nursery and grab them now so that they can be in here for that. So the people are ready for this Messiah. They're ready for a warrior king. And this is why in the story of the triumphal entry, when we celebrate on Palm Sunday, when Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on an unridden donkey, It's the fulfillment of a prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9. And the people around, you have to think, are are murmuring and whispering, is this the fulfillment of that prophecy? Is this the Messiah? Could this be that warrior king? And you got to think there's a lot of of hypertension and a lot of, of excitement going on. And then you've got palm branches and cloaks that are being laid on the ground, which was a ritualistic thing that people would do during a coronation of a king. They did this at Jehu's coronation in the Old Testament, and they're doing it here again. They're laying out the red carpet for Jesus to come through because they're ready to anoint him king. And then you've got the people screaming, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And ironically, what was at one point in Israel's history, a desperate plea for help. It means save us, we pray. Desperately saying, please save us now. It is all of a sudden a shout of exuberance to say, we have been saved. He has heard our prayer. Hosanna in the highest. And then there's a sacrifice to be made. And culturally, Anytime a new king took over, they would go to the temple of the gods of that kingdom and they would make a political sacrifice as if to say, first of all, I'm in charge here and I'm in charge of your gods. But second of all, to say, I'm accepting of your gods and your culture. And so anytime a king took over, that was going to happen. And the people were ready for Jesus, especially during Passover when everybody's in Jerusalem making sacrifices. They're ready for Jesus to go to the temple to make this sacrifice, and they're ready to crown him right then and there during this coronation ceremony. There were people in the crowd that were probably ready to take up arms and fight to be the army of this great Messiah warrior king. But in a twist, 
a complete anticlimax happens. Jesus walks to the temple, and by Matthew's account, instead of making a culturally appropriating sacrifice that was completely political, he cleanses the temple, flips over tables, and says, that doesn't belong in my father's house. It's the complete opposite. Instead of muddling the temple, he cleanses it. In the book of Mark, Mark's account actually says he got to the temple, looked around, saw that it was late, and turned around and went back to Bethany. And then the next day he came back and cleansed the temple. Jesus does the complete opposite of what people are expecting, which was kind of his MO for his whole life, right? Jesus was not this warrior king that people were ready to crown. Earlier, we, uh, we talked about a king. And the king from the Middle Ages dressed as a peasant, and he had a rough day, and he met a friend, right? When he got back to his temple, he treasured, or his temple, his, his palace, he treasured these things in his heart. And he had a good night's sleep, and when he woke up the next morning, he put on his best robes, and he put on his crown. He combed his hair. He put on his little handkerchief with his best-smelling perfume so people wouldn't have to smell his middle-aged stench. He even wiped his face that morning, which is a big deal. And he went and got his chariot, and he walked out with his entourage, and as he went into the city, the people who had disrespected him the day before were bowing at his feet, were singing his praises, moving out of the way so that he would have a clear path down the road. But this time it was the king who disrespected them and didn't look them in the eye. He paid no attention to what was going on. He had a one-track mind. He was going to see his friend. And he goes, and he goes down the street to where the girl was, and nobody's in the, in the front having the tea party. So he goes and he knocks on the door, and who opens the door but the girl? And her mom is right behind her, and her mom sees the king, and she immediately bows down on all fours, and she sees that her daughter has not bowed. So she's pulling at the dress of her daughter, saying, bow, it's the king, bow, it's the king. But before she can, the king gets down on his knee and takes her by the shoulders. He looks her in the eye, and he says, you know me. You've seen me. And the girl says, you're my friend. The king says, yes, I'm your friend. That's who I am. See, in the story of Jesus, people are ready for this warrior king, this person to come and be this great savior and be, establish a kingdom, a literal physical kingdom here on this earth. But Jesus came as a lamb. Jesus came as a peasant. And there were only a few who could accept that. But I'm here to tell you, Jesus did come as a peasant, and he did come as a lamb. But when Jesus comes back, he's coming back as a lion. He's coming back as a king. And I pray that we can accept Jesus as the humble servant that he is, as the one who came and completely turned over the structures and the expectations that this great warrior king may not have physically come, but he is a king who did liberate us from sin and from death. And his kingdom will fill this earth. And his kingdom will reign forever.
See, Jesus isn't someone who came to trample our adversaries. He's not someone who came to help us get ahead in this world or in our jobs or workplaces. He's not someone who's going to bring financial prosperity to all of us. He's, he's not someone who's going to be a good luck charm in our lives that we can, we can bring out when we need him or put him back when we don't. He's not going to be this person who, who is just only in the big, great, majestical things because just like Elijah, when Elijah was hiding in a cave and there was a great wind and the Lord wasn't in the wind and there was an earthquake and the Lord wasn't in the earthquake and there was a great fire and the Lord wasn't in the fire and then there was a whisper and Elijah hit his face. He probably dabbed like that. He hit his face because he didn't want to look upon the face of the Lord, as he knew the Lord was in the whisper. And Jesus, many times, is in that whisper, in that humility. He's not the one who's going to liberate us from our political leaders and our political structures, but Jesus is the king. Jesus did fulfill prophecy. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the one who's going to liberate us or has liberated us from sin and death. He is the one whom we should live to serve, even though he's a servant. And if we serve a servant, how low does that make us, right? We must humble ourselves to do so because he is the one that speaks in that still, small voice. And unless we humble ourselves to understand who Jesus is as a servant, as one who came to serve and not to be served, as he told his disciples before he walked into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry. If we can't accept him as a servant, and if we can't humble ourselves to serve a servant, then we're not going to be able to accept him as a king. We're not going to be able to accept his kingdom when it's truly realized. Do we need to be more like the girl in the story? Which is almost a spitting image of one of my favorite passages I've read to you a hundred thousand times. And as we prepare for a baby blessing, I'm going to read it to you again, even though you can probably quote it with me by now. People were bringing children or paideia, infants, to Jesus that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked these people. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant, and he said to them, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. He took his arms and blessed them and laid hands on them. The kingdom of God belongs to the humble. The kingdom of God belongs to those who can accept Jesus for who he is, not as someone who is too big and, and too good and not, doesn't have enough time for kids or is going to establish his throne physically and destroy physically all of these uh, constructs and all of these empires. But we need to accept Jesus as a servant, as a child, accept him. And so as I call uh, the names of, of these children that were born all the way in last year, in 2021, I want to ask a couple of things. One, I want you to see the kids that come up here and know that these kids, according to Jesus, 
are not someone we can look forward to being the church one day in the future, but are, peop- are, are people and part of the church and the right part of the church, the perfect representation of the church right now. And as these kids come up, parents, I want to charge you with this, and congregation, I want to charge you with this, that we should continuously raise these children to know and see Jesus and never stop being able to see him as a child does. So, Elsita, I want you to go ahead and come up here. Elsita's got a Bible. And so as I call the names of the children, if I had their families come up on the stage on this side, grab their, your Bible from Miss Elsita, and then I'll, I'll have the elders and I'll have the ministry staff come up here as well to lay hands on our kids as we pray for them. Let's pray. God, we lift up to you these children, their parents, their families. We pray that uh, we recognize that we need to see you and your kingdom as they do. God, we pray that you help them grow in strength and wisdom and spirituality, that as they grow, they grow in their understanding of you and in their relationship with you. We pray that you can use their parents and their families to help them uh, as they grow on, on their path with you, as they try to follow the way, you, Jesus, or the way to the new promised land. God, we pray for this church, this congregation, and the church across the world, your church, that we would do our part to raise these children in your way, in the way of the Lord. God, bless these children. Bless them as you did 2,000 years ago as you took time out of your busy ministry to bless the kids, God. We pray that you bless them right now. God, we love you and we trust you and we entrust these kids to you that you would protect them, that you would watch after them, that you would love them, and that you would show them your way. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.